This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide. Welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average. On the show this week, we've got Billy here. Billy, if you just want to come in and introduce yourself. Thanks, Blair. So, my name's Billy Hare. I'm an academic. I'm based at uh, Glasgow Caledonian University. I, I don't like to use the long titles, but um, for the purpose of the video tonight, um, I'm a professor of construction management at Glasgow Caledonian University, and my research area happens to specialise in construction, health and safety. Thanks, Billy. So, I don't know if you've seen the show. I know you've maybe seen the Fraser Allen podcast that we've done a few weeks ago. We'd like to just go right back to the start, if you want to tell us just a little bit about your background, where you grew up. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So, uh, born and raised in the, the town of Greenock, which uh, by any uh, social and economic measure is a area of high deprivation in, in Inverclyde. Um, and I grew up in a sort of small council estate, son of a slater and plasterer who then became a general builder. And that was the kind of embryo, you might, you might uh, say, of my, uh, my move into what I'm known for is the built environment or the construction industry. And the, as you might guess, my, my old man being a, predominantly a, a slater, in these parts that means working on roofs. Um, if you've got a wide audience participation, they might not quite understand what a slater is. So someone who replaces tiles and does maintenance work on on roofs, and in this part of the world, that would include tenement roofs as well, which uh, can be quite high. Uh, and I always had uh, fond memories. Uh, my dad always enjoying his job, doing that kind of job. Um, but I also have memories as a, a quite a youngster uh, of my dad having quite a few bad accidents as well, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's probably not a surprise to you that two of his major accidents that he had in his career, both of them were falls from height. Mm -hmm. uh, one was a fall from a scaffold and the other one was a fall from a ladder uh, and again that's maybe not a, a, a surprise. Uh, one of them in particular, uh, you know, I had to go to hospital, blood transfusion uh, and that was kind of late 70s, early 80s which uh, in, those, in those days, what that means now is that he can't, he can't give blood because of what happened during that time frame for folk that received blood transfusions. Um, but uh, it can have a long-lasting effect on me and on my parents because they were adamant that, that I would not follow my father into that profession because it was too dangerous. Uh, he'd, um, he'd seen friends of his, uh, bad injuries, and even even worse during his time, time frame. So I was, um, I was encouraged. Uh, I was seen as the intelligent one in the family, and I was encouraged uh, you know, through my school years that I would, I would get a safe office job of, of some of some sort and on uh, leaving school you know I'd, uh, um, I, I decided that I'd, I'd get a job and in those days uh, I'd left school in 1990 and uh, the, uh, the jobs were offered for someone who'd done reasonably well in their, you know, their, their higher grades at the time as it was and, uh, and I got a job believe it or not my first job was in the Clydesdale Bank in Gourock and if anyone knows that part of the world, 
it was a cushy number. It was a nice wee sleepy place where um, where it's mostly a seaside town kind of thing. Um, and I enjoyed that as far as it went. You know, for a school leaver, uh, it was a reasonable income each week. Um, but quite quickly, I noticed a few of my friends and such like, you know, going on to do better things. And I was still, I was still kind of lingering in, in, a, in a job. At the time when banking was going through a change, early 90s, at that time, the, the um, chief executive of Clydesdale was a little-known guy called Fred Goodwin, who uh, became quite infamous when the RBS um, mm -hmm. hit the skids. Um, and, and banking changed there. No, it, came, it, it moved from being a job for life to being a sales job, you know, mm. for, for selling that. I was that guy, I was that guy selling new PPI. <laughs> um, um, and I quickly got very disillusioned with it. And I always cost my, cast my eye back to working with my, my old man um, in, my, in my younger years. I say in school, so, you know, it was, wasn't particularly um, safe as well. When I worked in roofs with my dad, his idea of safety was to tie the rope round my thigh when we're, when we're leaning against a pitch roof. And, uh, uh, and, I, and you know, that, that's, that's the kind of way life was then. And uh, but I enjoyed it. And I thought, I, I want to move into construction as a, as, as a way of life. So I decided, uh, kind of early 20s, I would go to university. And it was, um, first of all, a, a year at the co uh, Glasgow College of Building and Printing. That, that's been mentioned a couple of times. I know Fraser Allen mentioned it in, mm. in an earlier interview. Uh, and I was studying uh, construction and built environment, HND, and moved up to Glasgow Cali and went on to study the, the degree in construction management. Um, from, uh, oh, during that, you know, those degrees are vocational and they've got a sandwich course. So I, um, uh, I, I got my first break in, sort of, if you like, management, working with a company at the time called Dickey Construction based in Thornley Bank. They no longer exist. They were bought over by Rock, and Rock, uh, Rock promptly went bust uh, uh, quite soon after that. Um, but I had some good, I had kind of got my grounding there with Dickey Construction. Um, and on graduating, I had a spell as well in London, working for a French engineering and construction firm by the name of Bouygues, which in France and globally is a well-known household uh, one of the biggest construction companies in the world in the UK. At that point in time, no one had ever heard of them. Mm -hmm. And they, they moved into UK by acquisition and, and most of their guys were French engineers, but they hired some local guys and that included me, some wee Scottish guy with a Scottish accent working in London, whenever all the subcontractors around me thought I was French. So <laughs> the French. Um, uh, but the cost of living there, even with the London allowance, I was finding it a bit tough. And uh, and an old lecturer had contacted me and said, uh, "Would would you like a job?" Because I, I believe it or not, uh, you might find this hard to believe, but I excelled in in the class when I was a student studying at Cali, and I'd won most of the sweep to the board with the awards, um, modest with it as well. And uh, <laughs> and uh, he remembered me and he said, "Do you want to?" I've got a job here, it's, it's a research post at the uni. It's a project funded by the HSE. So it's a point mm -hmm. the HSE with a bit of money to fund research projects that don't fund as many these days. But he said, I, I think you're the guy to do this job. Um, There's going to be a bit of a drop in salary, but work-life balance would be great. And he sold it to me on that. 
Uh, but then he said, you know, the, the, the project would be health and safety focused. And at that point, I said, well, I don't know, because, I mean, the health and safety guys I work with, uh, I don't pretty much like them. I don't, <laughs> don't rate them much. Um, I don't know if it's an area I want to move into, but um, it, it worked out quite fit. It worked out quite good because in the end, it was probably the most defining moment in my career. And, uh, and it was at that point in time that I uh, started to get involved in what, what I'm now known for, construction, health and safety. And that was about 20 years ago. So, uh, and I've been doing that ever since, and, I, and I've been loving it. And, and that first project that kicked all off, uh, it was on the integration of, you know, health and safety management with construction project management, which any, anyone in the construction industry that's connected with health and safety should be able to spot quite clearly the link there with the CBM regulations. And that's, again, something that I'm quite well known for these days, uh, which, which kind of started all things off. So that, that was the kind of the roots of where I came from. They're very much building and construction influence. Uh, and the little nuggets that stayed with me that eventually came through to make me more of a, you know, health and safety orientated uh, practitioner. Um, I'm I, I, I careful not to call myself an OSH practitioner and um, because I, I've never really held that position. But um, through the work that I've done over the last 20 years, I've got involved in a lot from the education, moving through to the training, and having a bit of a site background, I'm comfortable speaking to those from industry, which not every academic can do, um, as you might know, Blair, if you spoke to a few. And um, I've, uh, I've, I've got very, very good links now with IOSH and with many OSH practitioners. And I think most of them um, kind of make the mistake that I'm a fellow OSH practitioner, but I'm really just a, a building guy in disguise. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you Billy. So if you want to just take us through some of the research that you're, you're pretty well known for at the moment and tell us some of the, the ins and outs of what you've been involved in over the past few years. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So yeah, I mean it, it's taken me in contact with a lot of um, OSH practitioners. I, I know a lot of them, a lot of the guys that you've interviewed as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd say as well as the CDM stuff, uh, um, I've really enjoyed I think the most is the research around worker engagement mm -hmm. and that that's a in, in you know uh, in terms of my research portfolio that that's relatively new but mm -hmm. when I say relatively new I've been doing that kind of work for about 10 years now yeah. and uh, on and off in, in different uh, the first project was again was funded by HSE uh, and then we did some work with CITB and that was at a point in time where um, uh, there seemed to be quite a profusion of research um, in the area of uh, non-English speaking workers, migrant workers, um, mm. quite different now, I think, you know, within a, a short space of time, I, I would guess we, um, we won't have anybody working here who doesn't speak a foreign language, you just have to speak English or won't get a job in the UK quite soon. But at that point in time, the, the, um, the communication and the, uh, the language barrier. There was uh, a lot of questions around that. When I did the original work on working engagement, that question came up time and time again, and I got an opportunity through CITB and then through I, the IOSH Research and Development Fund, of which I've been a, a recipient of probably more times than most other people. My name comes up uh, time and time again. Uh, they've not found me out yet, so I'm quite, <laughs> quite pleased with that. 
and um, I'll come back to that. The, the IOS funding has been really good because it it, um, it came at a time when the HSE funding started to dwindle, mm -hmm. and and and, I, and I'm quite um, vocal about this about the lack of research funding available in the area of any health and safety um, mm -hmm. domain. And uh, I, if it wasn't for IOSH, I'd probably have a shorter research career because they, they really took up the mantle and you, you really got to take your hat off to IOSH for, for continuing with that research and development fund. Um, what I would say is um, I'm quite proud to say we at GCU um, delivered the very first project funded. Um, it wasn't the first one um, wasn't the first one that was approved, but it was the first one delivered. That's because we delivered on time. Um, just wanted to get that little dig in as well. <laughs> so it's 2007-07-01 is the report number, and it was on the it was on the general theme that IOSH at the time with their inaugural funding was you know on the the importance and the contribution of the OSH practitioner to health and safety management. Mm -hmm. uh, and as I always uh, tend to do, virtually all my research is, takes place in the construction industry. So uh, we endeavoured to undertake uh, a quantitative study, um, survey-based, but gathering as much safety performance information as we could from about 100 contractors to try and determine what the OSH practitioner's contribution to, you know, the... the we, we, we left health to one side because uh, it's problematic to try and measure it, uh, it was at the time mm -hmm. and uh, we looked purely at safety, we looked at accident experience and uh, and looked, once you get big enough a sample, uh, we, we um, looked at what, what is it the OSH practitioner does, are there organisations where OSH practitioners do certain things that impact be, better than maybe other things that they do and it was set of course within the the context of the, the building and construction industry. And we found a number of things, for example, where the OSH practitioner is involved in vetting subcontractors that was associated with the better performing contractors, which I'm sure is no surprise to you, Blair, but you know, it's good to get the empirical evidence to prove it. Um, yeah. Something that I found, there's always little surprises, you know, when, when you do research, you've got your preconceived notions and you think, what is the case? And, and one of my preconceived notions was that if an OSH practitioner had other duties, then it might dilute the OSH message. So um, that was proved wrong. And uh, OSH practitioners who also had an environmental role uh, mm -hmm. were associated again with contractors that were the higher performing contractors. And these were statistically significant differences we're talking about. So what we took from that is that actually if you're an OSH practitioner and you've got other strings to your bow, mm -hmm. uh, it actually, it strengthens your role within the organisation, your knowledge and understanding of what's happening within the organisation and your ability to influence what's happening in the organisation. So there's, there's more to that. I could go on for quite a, long, uh, a longer period of time on that research. Mm -hmm. just on the IOS website. And if you've never heard of it or came across it, I, I thoroughly recommend it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and another thing we do, uh, I do personally, is a lot of this research that I do makes its way into our teaching at Cali, so um, that's a wee pitch there, a wee dig for the uh, for the courses that we run at GCU. Um, we, I, I, I'm, between myself and my, my mentor, I'll call him the guy who brought me to GCU to study health and safety, Ian Cameron. Between mm -hmm. the two of us, we've, we've got quite a substantial portion of health, safety, environment and welfare 
and in, and in more recent times, including well-being as well, and mm -hmm. the teaching syllabus that comes from the, the research we've done over the years. Excellent. Um, that, that's probably a, a, a useful summary of uh, the kind of research area. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated with the research that you've done on Beyond the Site Gate, Barry. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Aye, aye, that's, um, that's part of the worker engagement um, work that I've done, and it's the most recent um, mm -hmm. contribution on that. I, I, something I tried to do in earlier research and didn't quite get the freedom to do, um, eventually got one thanks to a, a very large fund that was made available by Berkeley Group. Mm -hmm. um, they announced a, a number of years ago, I think 2014, 2015, um, they created a, a health and safety research fund. And again, hats off to them. Uh, I mean, Berkeley Group, London-based developer, house builder, um, over the years they've made their profits, I'm pretty sure. And you know, they probably, um, probably an easy tax break for them. Uh, but, but they created this uh, one million pound fund and, uh, and we took a big chunk of it to do that research. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was to, the title of the work was to develop a, a worker engagement maturity model. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if you've seen any stuff on maturity models, there's a lot, there's a culture maturity model amongst others. And they're very much uh, organizational based. Um, mm. But I wanted to do this maturity model from the worker's perspective, right? So how the individual worker matures through a worker engagement um, maturity model, so to speak. Um, and, and, and that work acknowledges the fact that some workers do not want to be engaged, do not want to be engaging. And uh, you've got to acknowledge that and see that there are certain things that might um, take an evolutionary step for those workers, that they'll mm -hmm. go from one uh, end of the ladder up to the other. Um, and through that work, it was, a, it was a piece of qualitative work. Right? So I've, I, 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 I've, over the years, I can do qualitative, quantitative or mixed methods. Uh, so to the academic, that, that makes sense. To the, to the layman, that, that means like the work, the work that involves statistics and numbers is the quantitative and the qualitative is a more woolly, more difficult to untangle type research, which mm -hmm. I find actually far more fascinating because when you're dealing with human interaction, uh, that, that kind of research uh, is good for exploratory and it's good for uncovering things that maybe the, the existing research methods have not uncovered. Uh, and from that work, we, we, a combination of, you know, building on the theory that's gone before, building on theory from other, other disciplines, and then interviewing workers and you know looking at it from the workers we didn't interview managers because managers tell you what they think is the uh, is going on in their organization and and it's a bit like the queen coming to to see your you know to see your premises and you know, she can smells the smell of fresh paint um you've really got to get in amongst the the workers and the operatives that, that are at the, the coffees so from that we, we developed a, it eventually it became a five-point scale Mm -hmm. uh, and that five-point scale um, breaks down into um, what we've what we called we labelled meaningful discussion. And each of these have got their got their levels of maturity from the bottom level up. Mm -hmm. And meaningful discussion is the one where the term you came out with there beyond the site gate uh, is at the top level of that discussion. And um, I mean, I'll talk you through that one. It's probably the most fascinating. The others are trust, motivation, um, empowerment. And it's, 
I went, I went for, instead, I was going to use the term behavior, but behavior wasn't the right term. So we went for the term commitment, which mm -hmm. again is a personal attribute. Um, but if I bring you back to the meaningful discussion, that was a phrase that, that was born out of most of the trade union movement. They, they'd coined that phrase and I'd, I thought it was a good phrase to start with. And then um, with the work with HSE, I tried to develop it and there was a lot, a lot of good um, work published from Scandinavian countries on this. And if you know, you know, if you've done any, if you've read anything on the Scandinavian approach to health and safety, it's very more holistic and it, and it captures a lot of these other things. And, uh, and I quite like that as, as, a, as a framework. So meaningful discussion fits quite nice with that Scandinavian view of worker engagement and, and management of health and safety. So the, 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 the maturity of it um, starts yeah. with, and you'll recognize, I'm sure you'll recognize this and uh, in, in your own work environment, is that the, the bottom level of the ladder is, um, you know, it's what you talk about, meaningful discussion, what, what is it you actually talk about. So when, you, when we interview work, interviewed workers for this research, and we didn't try and enforce any categories or labels on them, we just asked them to tell us our, their stories. And from the stories, you extract where, where the common threads are. Um, so your, your, early, your, your early bottom of the, the, the maturity model, if you ask someone to, to talk about health and safety, they'll gravitate towards the obvious things, PPE and things like welfare facilities. So they're near the bottom end of that maturity model. That's not to say they're not important, but that's invariably the first thing. If you have not been educated and trained in your health and safety or, or the technical aspects of the job, that's usually the first thing you'll gravitate towards. And the idea, it's a bit of a um, needs requirement. So if you satisfy those needs, like a Maslow scale or that kind of thing, yeah. then your welfare and your PPE, if they're looked after, then it allows you to move on to further afield and talk about other things. And the next step up identified on our maturity model is, what is the next thing you talk about after that? It's usually what we might call reactive hazard spotting. So you start yeah. talking about, oh, I saw something going wrong. I saw this guy working unsafely or this lady working unsafely or whatever. And that's the next area of, of discussion that might come out of that. Yeah. And then let's say you, you start to satisfy those needs or you, you address those issues um, and, and you're asking for what, what else, how, how else can we improve, what else needs to be discussed. Um, and the next level up is what we call proactive um, measures. Uh, and that is talking about things before they become a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So again, if your level of education on health and safety, but also on the organization's working methods and safe systems of work and all that kind of thing, then workers start thinking about um, man you know, things that might border on um, management issues such as you know, just-in-time delivery to, to prevent slips and trips, for mm -hmm. example. If you get that kind of concept, um, these are these are taken from real examples that we got from the interviews, that kind of thing. So that's a, another level up, and then the top level, which not many people get to, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and the only ones that got to this level were possibly trade union safety reps, and that's partly due to the level of training they receive, and yeah. partly because their motivation and what they want to talk about. So beyond the site gate is exactly what it sounds like, um, and again, it, that term came from the kind of trade union lexicon and mm -hmm. uh, uh, things like uh, policy issues, CDM issues, 
Um, things that are away from the site that impact on the site well, are a bit more highbrow, are a bit more, you know, not what you would expect the hourly paid worker to talk about. And mm -hmm. that even branched out into things like um, men mental health as well, because these are yeah. beyond, the, in many cases, issues that are beyond the side gate. And if you're, uh, uh, so it's not a case that you talk about one, then you move up a level, you move up a level. Think about it more like a continuum and all these things get discussed. Because at any one point in time, you might go back to a welfare issue. But the thing is, how, how, how deep is the breadth of things that you're discussing? And before I leave that, I'll just say, um, your mind might be thinking, well, talking about it isn't the same as getting it done. That's where that category then bleeds into the empowerment category. So, mm -hmm. for example, you could be talking about things, you could be talking about welfare and such like, but you'll never move beyond that if the empowerment section of your maturity model is not taken care of or answered. In other words, if you raise an issue and it doesn't get dealt with and it gets um, kicked into the long grass or a black hole or whatever analogy you want to use, um, then you'll get dissatisfied with it, of course, and you'll just say, well, what's the point of being engaged then? I'm done, I'm out, kind of thing. So it's the, the, the meaningful discussion, I've just talked you through the various levels, but it impinges on all these other factors and the trust as well. So, you know, you might bring up a lot of things and think you've been very proactive, but if the trust goes, and what makes the trust disappear is things, and you know, those involved in construction, health and safety will know what I'm talking about when I say blacklisting. So you might be a worker who thinks you've been really proactive in raising sorts, all sorts of issues around health and safety in the hope that you would improve things. And before you know it, you're put on a blacklist or you're being labelled a troublemaker. Then that's where the trust falls down. And again, that will hinder your development, your maturity. Um, hopefully that gives you a little insight. There's even more to it than that, believe it or not. But um, but we did get quite a lot of money off Berkeley to do that research. So it's, it's more than just back up a fag packet. An excellent piece of work as well, Billy. If anybody wants to get involved and get you to do some research for them, how would they get in touch with you? That's a, that's a great set up there. Thanks, Billy. <laughs> um, it's, uh, uh, I mean, you'll find me, just, just search for me, um, Google my name, Billy Hare GCU, um, or Billy Hare BBC, because I'm, I'm never away for that place <laughs> You'll see me on the news every now and again, every time there's a catastrophe. Um, and uh, my contact details are on the website. For some reason, they've not updated my photo. So I look like some fresh face 20 something when you, when you see my, my photo on the, on the website. Um, but an email to me, um, uh, I'd be happy to talk to you. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And I'll no doubt I'll share this video at some point on LinkedIn. I get quite a lot. I'm, I'm really a big fan of LinkedIn. What, what I originally liked about it most was the, um, the fact that I don't need to update your details when you move job because you'll do it and then I'll, I'll get access to it. But, but that was my original motivation for being on LinkedIn, but it's become a really good area for people to contact me. The amount of people have contacted me through LinkedIn as well. Um, and, and that's led to collaborations and research as well. And I, I, I would say just one last thing is that uh, there's a whole, um, I've used the word already this evening, continuum, but there's a whole continuum of collaboration as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I could have a dissertation student do a little piece of work for you um, if you've got some data and you want to analyse. That's at one end of the scale. Somewhere in the middle might be that we do a bit of work and I'll do, out of the kindness of my heart, I might dedicate a, a day or two of time to, to help you out with something. 
Uh, and then moving through that, if you've got a bit of uh, a bit of R and D money within the organisation, then you might you might decide to to ring fence some of my time. And that you know, if there's a bit of money available, then I'm I'm able to justify to my employer to ring fence a bit more of my time and dedicate a bit more time towards a problem or a or a research question. Um, and then you know, there's bigger ones where we can go. You know, you could come to me and we. We team up as a team and we put a proposal to somewhere like IOSH or some other research funding organisation or government can match like for like. Um, a, a good one that I'm having discussions with a company just now is a, known as a KTP, a Knowledge Transfer Partnership, and you, you can employ someone. So if you're going to, I know there's a lot of, in the current situation, there's a lot of recruitment freeze on at the moment, but hopefully at some point when people come out the other end of that, a great vehicle for boosting your, your research and your development is you can actually recruit from the university. I, you know, one of the more higher level graduates that's done quite well and uh, we take them on as an associate as they call and between me and the organisation um, that associate does the legwork under my supervision but they get to work and you know they, they become an employee of the organisation and longer term the organisation gets the option whether they take them on permanently or they say goodbye and part ways after the end of the project, and uh, and that could be to develop you know some new approach to your management of health and safety if you think you've plateaued a bit, or it might be that you've got a lot of data and you don't know what to do with it. You know all these companies I see that have got near miss or um, close call data, they don't know what to do with it. So that, that's the kind of thing where I could talk to you about that as well and say, well, let's see what this is telling you and, and maybe analyse it and and we could do a bit of work there. So lots of options and uh, lots of levels of uh, collaboration available. There's plenty of opportunity there, Billy. I'm not letting you off the hook just quite yet, though. That's just how to contact Billy. We'll still get another few questions to go through with you. So the next one that I would like to move on to, Billy, is what's been your biggest challenge in health and safety up to this point? Biggest challenge, um, it's probably the OSH profession, to be honest. Um, you know, I've, I've seen a, um, an evolution there within, the, I think, the OSH practitioner. Um, when I think IOSH was just starting out, I mean, when I did my first degree in construction management, mm -hmm. there was a point in time where that would have got me membership of IOSH, mm -hmm. right, because of its health and safety content. These days it wouldn't because you need, you know, a, 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 an IOSH accredited degree, uh, mm -hmm. like the one that we run at GCU um, for the OSH practitioner. And I think the, the impact of that is that, you know, the OSH practitioner who's maybe in, his, in their 50s or 60s, uh, it's a second career for them. They've done something else. And, and I think that's very important. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm probably going to be a bit controversial now, but I think it's important to have life experience to be an OSH practitioner mm -hmm. and it's, you know it's, it's for some maybe it's been a second career because they've failed at their first career for some they've had a genuine interest in it so you've got a mixed bag there um, but your, your younger OSH practitioner who's never worked anywhere else and they've maybe done a degree straight from school uh, it's a bit more challenging for those guys I think they you know they've not got that life experience and uh, and I think that could that could be an issue. Um, I've also got a bit of a bean in my bonnet when uh, OSH practitioners particularly move in, into construction because construction will pay more to an OSH practitioner. 
but there's a reason for that, isn't there? You know, you, they get your pound of flesh, so to speak, and it's a far tougher gig. So I see a lot of OSH practitioners come from relatively lower risk industries thinking they've got their transferable skills and it will just be a shooting. And I, and I think what they're missing there is the wealth of technical knowledge that you need about the particular industry that you want to move into. So whether that be construction, whether it be nuclear, whether it be offshore, it's a lot of high, high potential high earning, but high risk and, and high consequences industries that the OSH practitioner might gravitate towards for the money. Uh, and, and I just, I just think that that could be a real, a, a real problem, because uh, that that's where I tend to do my business is in the high risk areas, and so I, I see that a lot. So I'm sorry if that sounds a bit negative, but I think that that's a real. I can't say that without then putting forward. I think what what, what might be the solution there, uh, and I think the solution would be if you're an OSH practitioner and you feel you're a bit light on the knowledge, and I would say enroll yourself in a wee CPD or, or even night class to learn the nuts and bolts of whatever industry you want to move into. Um, I mean, a lot of OSH practitioners are consultants, and uh, again, you can't be a consultant straight out of uni or straight out of school. Um, you've got to have lived a little bit there. So, but if you, if, if you want to base yourself in a, in a, in a particular industry sector, um, don't come undone by thinking that just because you know how to do a risk assessment, that's all you need to know, or you know how to investigate an incident or accident, that's all you need to know. I think you've really got to know um, the technology and the processes and the procedures within that particular discipline that you decide to move into. I think in some roles, they've got the opportunity there, if they've got a highly experienced team, to be able to take you in a more of a trainee style role, if you haven't got that background to come in and develop into the role. But again, if you're put straight into the front line trying to manage something that's high risk, high hazard, high risk, high consequence, yep. you could potentially face issues if you were coming into that straight from yep. university without any background in that particular area. You've, you've just triggered something in my mind there. And actually, um, more recently on our um, health and safety management degree at GCU, we've had a couple of um, students enrol when it's a, it's a specifically a part-time degree program for mm -hmm. people who are either working in an OSH position and want to want a short at promotion or they're working um, out with the OSH profession and they want the degree to move into OSH and they've, they've got some life experience and uh, the thing that you triggered in my mind there is that we've had a few who actually started out life doing an OSH apprenticeship Mm -hmm. And I have to say they're, they're, they're amongst some of the highest caliber younger students that I've yeah. seen. Uh, and I would, uh, I would, I'm a really big fan of that, the OSH apprenticeship, and I would thoroughly recommend it. Yeah, I don't think we're doing anywhere near enough of that in industry at the moment, Billy. These opportunities seem to be few and far between, and I think they should be very prevalent. There's been a bit of a reset in the health and safety industry with the, the coronavirus. All of a sudden, health yep. and safety has become very, very important to companies again. Companies are now starting to wake up and have a look around and say, we really, what would we have done without these people here to help us manage this? So yep. I think it's going to come back into vogue a little bit, and I would love to see apprenticeship roles being created. I know it was a, a battle when I first moved into health and safety to try and get that experience. I worked for one yep. or two days a week for free 
out, getting sight experience, working with an experienced person to have that background to move into the industry that I wanted to move into, which was construction. So I was going out, working a couple of days a week for free, getting my, my feet under the table, understanding how it worked, how it operated, what kind of lingo people used when they were out, to be able to go in and be a credible person when you get to that site level and get into your first paying position. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you if you don't know the vocabulary of a particular sector, um, your credibility does does become questionable, and I think that that's another aspect of what the point I, I was trying to make. Okay, so if we progress on a little bit more, Billy, if we talk about what what advice or guidance would you give to somebody starting out in health and safety today? I know we covered that a little bit there to get a little bit of life experience, but what else would you tell them to do? Yeah. I suppose as, a, as an academic, um, I, I would gravitate towards, you know, education. Uh, educate yourself. Don't, don't stick. Don't feel that you, you need to be that health and safety anorak. Um, you will be. I think through time you eventually become. Uh, many OSH practitioners become walking encyclopedias of regulation and, and rules, don't they? But I, I think you. You want to educate yourself on other things beyond health and safety, and that is that is definitely one area where the the younger you know OSH practitioner seems to get quite enthusiastic about you know the the impact of psychology on behavioural based safety and um, and other things like organisational management and organisational structures and and people like like if I go back to Fraser Allen you know he, he's made a a point of um, educate themselves on uh, business and, and, and management degree and uh, that's obviously put him in good stead where he is now and in, in his career so I think that's I would say read, read widely beyond your own profession uh, and try and make yourself as much a um, you know a, as, as much a knowledgeable person as you can about the world around you and and not just be confined to the world of health and safety. Um, there's nothing worse. I mean, there's more than once this has happened to me. I may be sitting at a, a dinner or, or a function and I'm talking to an OSH practitioner and we get, you know, you, you get so infused by these guys about that subject matter. And more than once, you know, the, the conversation comes to a natural kind of lull and I'll say, so what do you do outside of health and safety? And you could just see the eyes glaze over. <laughs> and, and you think, well, you got you got to have some other interests outside of health and safety, and I think you got by the same token, I think you got to educate yourself uh, beyond the the parameters of you know that that single profession as well. So I want to thank you for coming on, Billy. Thank you so much on behalf of the viewers yeah. and the listeners to Safer Than Your Average. People watching the video on YouTube are probably wondering what that is behind you. And we were talking about that off camera. It's probably the most threatening interview I've had. The guy's got two swords behind him. <laughs> and then he told me from Greenock. <laughs> started to get really worried. <laughs> but thanks very much I, for coming I, yeah, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll explain the, the, the swords in the background. Now, one of my sons is, a, is an avid sword collector, and uh, we, we've had various uh, customs and police officers at the door throughout the years as he orders stuff. Uh, we even brought back a, a sword from uh, Japan a few years back, all the way through customs. And you know, yeah, you, you're not allowed to put it in the hold, so we're carrying it through <laughs> through customs. 
Um, so the, these, these are swords that um, my son collects, and there's a lot more than just those two there. Um, but purely for um, um, for decorative purposes, I've never, I've never yet anyway had the need to use it in anger. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could always change. An unruly student, eh, Barry? Aye, aye. Well, the thing is, I mean, from from next month onwards, uh, all all my uh, education and, and lecturing and such like will be done from home. So that might that might feature in the odd lecture um, to to explain the importance of what the difference is between a hazard and a risk, for example. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show, Billy. I really appreciate it. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high risk and challenging filming and time lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide. <laughs>